Tim O'Reilly's book, What's the Future?, is an overview of business, technology, and society. As the founder of O'Reilly Media, Tim has been steeped in technology trends for the last 40 years. From his vantage point running conferences and publishing technical content, Tim has been able to make informed predictions about what is coming next. In today's conversation, Tim gave his perspective on how artificial intelligence will impact our world in the coming decades. More importantly, Tim emphasizes the role of human agency. The future is not something that merely happens to us as we sit back and eat popcorn. Today, we make decisions, and those decisions could help make our technology utopia or contribute to the fall of our great technological empire. On the subject of business, Tim gave a radically different perspective than some of the entrepreneurs that have come on Software Engineering Daily. In our conversation, he raised the question of why entrepreneurs raise massive amounts of money and get on the treadmill of startup hype and build a company around negative cash flows. For that model, the only possible outcomes are going public or being acquired or flaming out completely. O'Reilly Media has been cash flow positive since the beginning. And the company has steadily compounded, growing successively bigger businesses, from publishing to conferences to online learning. This episode gave me a lot to think about, just as the O'Reilly conferences have given me a lot to think about throughout the years. O'Reilly Media has graciously partnered with SE Daily since we were very small, since three years ago. So I have great admiration and appreciation for the company and Tim O'Reilly himself, it was a real pleasure and an honor to get to meet him in person. Before we get started, I want to mention that we're hiring. Our hiring positions include writers and a researcher and a videographer. And you can find these positions along with other jobs at softwareengineeringdaily.com jobs. Some of these are part-time roles, some are full-time. And if you yourself are hiring, you can also post on our job board. It's easy and free. And we'll be sharing some of the job postings with our listeners. Just go to softwareengineeringdaily.com slash jobs, and you can see how to post a job. All right, well, Tim O'Reilly, you are the founder of O'Reilly Media. Thanks for coming on Software Engineering Daily. I'm glad to be here. Your book, WTF, it's about... WTF technologies. These are things like augmented reality, artificial intelligence, on-demand services. It's been a year since you published WTF. Out of these topics, which we're going to explore, what are the things that you've changed your mind about? You know, uh, that's a very good question. I think that if I were to spend more time, if I were to rewrite the book now, I would probably put a little more emphasis on genetic engineering you know, I, I stayed away from it mainly because it's not really my field. But I do think that uh, when we think about the 21st century, there's going to be a huge amount there. How long till we have an O'Reilly conference dedicated to a genetic engineering? Well, we've actually taken a run at it two or three times. We did a bioinformatics conference back in 2001, and uh, we ran that for a number of years. And we obviously, we have our uh, science foo camp, which is basically an unconference that we do every year. We've been doing that since 2004. In fact, it's this weekend down at Google X. Okay. Yeah. Well, one contrast I see to your book is the Kevin Kelly book, The Inevitable, Mm -hmm. where he talks a lot about the same trends that you explore, but he describes it in this 
position of inevitability, whereas I see your book as more about the human agency involved mm-hmm. in these technologies. How do you contrast the the role of human agency versus the positioning of these technologies as being inevitabilities? You know, I, I think it in some ways goes back to this disagreement I had many years ago with Ray Kurzweil, uh, you know, where he would draw these graphs and say, well, look, progress goes up and to the right. And I said, well, yeah, from a distance, sure. But, you know, if you look, for example, at architecture, the Hagia Sophia in Istanbul was for a thousand years the largest building in the world because we lost the knowledge of how to build something like that. And so you can have on human time scales, you know, an immense slowing down or reversal of progress. So I think part of what we need to understand is that, first of all, nothing is inevitable. I think that uh, we face enormous discontinuities. And anyone who looks at, at history will see those even in, in human time frames, where there were great empires that fell, where there were uh, civilizations that collapsed. And I don't see any reason why ours might not be among them. In fact, I think it's more likely than not that ours will be among them. And so the notion of, of progress is also something that I think is profoundly suspect. You know, are, are we really more advanced? If you think about adaptation to the environment, maybe humans are not so very advanced after all. We've kind of destroying our environment in, you know, 10,000 years of, of our rise. And uh, will we effectively, you know, foul our nest sufficiently that, that we won't be able to continue to prosper? So I, I think I like to focus, yes, there are long-term trends that, have momentum, that have a powerful vector behind them. But that doesn't mean that they're inevitable, because first of all, there are other intersecting vectors. And it's sort of interesting, one of the set of people I've invited to our science food camp event are a couple of scholars who have been researching the, the interaction between climate change and the fall of civilizations. Both of them, have, have, uh, there's a group at Harvard that has basically done ice cores in uh, Greenland, and it just basically correlated historical events through Ro- Roman and, and early medieval civilization with, you know, with, with climate change events. We have also uh, one of the other people that's done a lot of study of the fall of ancient Aegean civilizations, and again, looking at the, the combination of climate change and, you know, triggering a disease, and then triggering migration, triggering warfare, and that kind of being this toxic stew that brings civilizations to an end. And we're about to face one of those kinds of, of events. And so, you know, part of the hopeful part of my book, though, is, is really that if we look at the big technology systems we're building, they teach us about decline and fall. They teach us that, you know, nobody's guaranteed a place in the sun forever. But we also see stories of renewal and stories of better choices. You know, and so and some of this might be because of the intervention of customers. It might be because of the intervention of competitors. It might be because of the intervention of of government. Well, you know, great. We've seen a great example, you know, in Microsoft, you know, which basically 
uh, you know, if you look at it from an evolutionary point of view, kind of grew because with the personal computer, there was this new inclusive opportunity for growth. Lots of people came swarming into this market. One company, you know, figured out the rules of the new ecosystem better than others, became better adapted, came to dominate, and then squeezed all the life out of the ecosystem. And all of the entrepreneurial energy then moved over to the internet. And of course, we're watching the same you know, story recur. But then meanwhile, Microsoft went and reinvented itself. And I think it's a much more interesting, humane company. And, and that's sort of, a, in some sense, a metaphor for you know, the w- broader choices that we can make as an economy. There have been times when our economy is very inclusive, and then there becomes a time when it becomes extractive. Right now, I think we're actually in a fairly extractive period, and there's less opportunity. You know, so if you look at the research of, of economist Raj Chetty at Stanford, he's been looking at the, you know, what's the likelihood that uh, children will be better off than their parents. And if you were born in 1970 versus 1940, you know, you are now kind of entering the period where, you know, this is sort of where they, they've, they've got measure, you know, like, so if you're, you know, now, you know, 50 years old, approaching 50, you go, oh, you can see that they're actually less well off. Our economy is becoming less robust for most people. And, and that's exactly what happened. You know, again, part of what I try to do in my book is to have this crosstalk back and forth between what we learn from the history of technology platforms and what we learn uh, about the economy. And right there, I go, okay, great. So that's exactly what happened to Microsoft. I predict it will happen to Google because I look at uh, the stats on Google and it's, it's sort of a bit more of a slow motion consumption of its ecosystem than it was with Microsoft. But uh, it's just as obvious. Uh, in 2004, Google got half of its revenue, nearly half, 49.5% from advertising on third-party websites. It's down to 18%. Now, so Google has grown its own properties you know, far faster than it's grown the opportunity for other people on the web, you know, which is exactly what happened in the PC industry with Microsoft. They basically took more of the value than they should have. It became a less robust ecosystem. Now, they've done some things that are very smart to counter that. You know, for example, in the smartphone market, giving away Android and creating a lot of value for others kind of gave them a bridge into the new mobile ecosystem. So they kind of understand that creating value and not just capturing it is, is a secret of success. But I think they've also aren't clear enough about that. And part of what excites me about AI and, and, and effectively algorithmic systems is what they're really good at is taking more and more data into account to get better results. You know, in the book, I, I, I spend some time, what do we learn from Google, the history of Google search quality? You know, and you look at the idea that they started with a couple of breakthrough insights that would give you better search results, things like PageRank, and then they also used, uh, you know, anchor text and a lot of the things that were already starting to be understood. But they've added hundreds of factors, including AI, which is you know, now the Google brain ranking is the third most important after uh, page rank and anchor text, or actually anchor text, I think is still number one. People don't quite realize that. And, you know, and as a result, they, they continue 
to have pretty good search results, despite sort of fairly robust attacks on the system by spammers, by people who are trying to game the system. We also take the lesson that this is a constructed system. They are managing it. They're man- you know, there are people managing the algorithms. And now you look at Facebook and you say, oh, they're now in the middle of a series of attacks on their algorithmic systems. And you also see the other problem with Facebook is that the objective function that they gave their algorithmic systems may have been incorrect. You know, so they thought that showing people more of what they engaged with deeply uh, would bring people together, and it turned out it could be used to drive them apart. Some of that was, you know, attacks, you know, by people trying to game the system and manipulate others, but some of it may be that they just had the wrong objective function. And I think there's a really interesting lesson here. They're sitting there going, how do we fix this? And what I try to do in the book by kind of uh, telling these stories is then go to, okay, now look at our overall economy and how it is also an algorithmic system where we have told companies to optimize for share price with the theory that it would make everybody richer. And just as we see with Facebook, maybe they were wrong, you know, because we see the hollowing out of the economy. We see the decrease in in opportunity. We see the increase in inequality. We see all of the negative externalities that are being created as people are saying, oh, well, we're going to, you know, sell you know, we're going to hack the system to sell opioids, uh, sell more opioids, you know, and go and devil take the hindmost uh, uh, as to what the consequences are. And I go, that's clearly a rogue objective function. And of course, that brings me to the uh, big metaphor of the book that in some sense, we've already built the human hostile AI, you know, the one that says humans are a cost to be eliminated. You know, we don't have to look forward to some far future. We can say, oh, maybe there's a kind of hybrid AI combined of humans and machines. And it also has this problem that Nick Bostrom originally identified of, you know, this runaway objective function where you tell the machine to optimize. Yeah, the paperclip optimizer or uh, Elon Musk's, uh, you know, a strawberry picking robot that eventually decides that humans are in the way of strawberry fields forever. We built one of those. It's this massive system where all of the incentives are get rid of people, treat them as a cost to be eliminated. And I think that we uh, have to actually rein in and debug that system in the same way that we're asking Facebook to rein in and debug the system that they built. Hmm. The company you you haven't mentioned yet, but is a, a centerpiece in your book is Amazon. And Amazon what I think distinguishes it from the other companies you've mentioned so far is it has been augmentative to both people in the technology industry and people outside of it. So in the technology industry, it's responsible for the massive boom in tech in you know, the lowering cost of technology companies because of AWS. And I, th- I think people, it's, it's very easy to forget that people sometimes do forget that, that yeah. how influential AWS has been, but also just the, the fact that it's such a massive employer of low skilled labor, it's yeah. augmentative for low skilled laborers. Why are there not more enterprises that manage to be augmentative to the low-skilled labor class? Because this seems like something that that we would need to bridge that gap. I mean, putting aside the AI question for a second, just sticking to the first question around the income inequality stuff, if you can augmentate the or augment the the skills of of low-skilled workers, that seems like a valuable opportunity. 
Well, the other company I talk a lot about in the book that does that is is Uber or Uber and Lyft. You know, they are also uh, using technology to augment workers so that they can do things that you couldn't do before. I mean, you know, if if when you think about the street hail aspect of taxis, you go, well, anybody could do that, but how? You know, it's like now you can actually be summoned by the app, and but more than that. Anybody can be a driver because there's an app that knows how to get from anywhere to anywhere. And so you think here, right here is an augmentation technology. I think that Silicon Valley, though, well, first of all, there's two things that are wrong. One is that we focus too much on, you know, some of the negatives of these jobs that they're, you know, for example, not great jobs. You know, same thing through Amazon warehouse jobs without recognizing that they can get better over time. You know, and the, in fact, that's what we should be shooting for. We shouldn't be trying to make go back to the old ways. We should say, how do we get our values expressed in these new ways? But also, we need to be looking at, well, how do these same technologies augment higher and higher opportunities? You know, so a great example of this that I, I, I point to at the very end of the book is a company called Zipline. They are using on-demand drone delivery uh, to reinvent healthcare in countries that have don't have a well-developed healthcare infrastructure, you know. So they are now. I mean, uh, you know, Keller Ronaldo, the the founder, was telling me they they know that they have saved in the last couple of years, uh, last two years, sixteen hundred lives in Rwanda. That's a, a you know a small country where they, they they started. Just signed a deal, I believe, or they're on the brink of signing deals in you know the Philippines in. Ghana in in four or five other countries, and and, and they're they're running some pilots even here in the U.S. So here's this opportunity to do something that was previously impossible. And you can really see it in this international context. You know, the old way was, okay, you're going to have, you know, in order to to, to be able to do transfusions. And and what they started with was literally the the leading cause of of, uh, female mortality in Rwanda was postpartum hemorrhage. And you go, okay, you don't have the infrastructure for there to be blood everywhere in the country because it means you have to have a fairly big blood bank to have all the rare blood types. And they go, oh, we can just, and there's bad roads, and you just can't get it to people in the old way. And they go, but we can get it to them in the new way. And so, and and then, of course, that builds a new workforce where they've got, I mean, again, this is still a small company, but... You know, hundreds of people who are drone engineers, who are drone operators, who are, you know, running the airfields where they're, you know, they're basically doing these these deliveries of blood and critical medicines. And, and it really is a beautiful story of why I use this term WTF, because, you know, that WTF, the first time you see something kind of fades away. Right. And I use the analogy, this is a great quote from Tom Stoppard, the playwright, where he talks about a unicorn. And, it, you know, it's at first it's incredibly magical, and then it becomes, as he says, as thin as reality. You know, more and more people see it, and you go, oh, that's just the way it is. And Keller's, like, totally clear about that. You know, like, if you're in Rwanda, and you see a drone flying overhead and, you know, dropping a little package, you know, you take it for granted. You know, oh, yeah, they're delivering blood, you know, or they're delivering medicine, you know? And it's just like, and that to me is real progress. And we, we do these things that used to be impossible, and we come to take them for granted. And, and uh, anyway, I, I think there's so much more opportunity. And when I think about, you know, kind of the design pattern, as I like to say, of the 
of the 21st century. It's to use technology not to replace people, but to augment them so they can do things that were previously impossible. And, you know, think about all the great tech companies, you know, Google enabling us to have access to all the world's information. Uh, that didn't used to be possible, and now it is. Mm-hmm. You know, we take for granted our ability to communicate with people all over the world. You know, we, we, we are now increasingly have an infrastructure where products from all over the world can be, uh, you know, sold and exchanged. It's kind of astonishing. I don't think a lot of people know the scale of the Amazon store. I assume same thing is true of Alibaba in China. There are 600 million unique SKUs, stock-keeping units, uh, unique products in Amazon U.S., about 3 billion unique SKUs worldwide. You know, so imagine you know, that we have a store with 3 billion SKUs, you know, hundreds of millions of customers who can really get pretty much anything. Yeah. And, and, and again, that's enabling commerce... Yes, it's putting some people out of work in small stores, although I think that the the evidence is that the number of jobs lost in retail is actually outstripped by the number of jobs that are created in, you know, in delivery and in warehousing. There's actually been more jobs created by e-commerce than destroyed. The problem, as, you know, for a society is that those jobs are in different places. And, and so, you know, the lumpiness of the future is actually more of a problem in some sense than the, the you know, the absolute value of what is being created. Right. So lumpiness meaning the radical difference in value accrued to the people who are the providers of these services versus... Well, that's one kind of lumpiness, but it's also just lumpiness about where the jobs are, for example. Uh, I do think, you know, again, there's some really interesting work by Michael Mandel at the Progressive Policy Institute where he's, well, let me put this as a broader economic theory where they talk about uh, the history of what they call frontier firms, companies that, you know, one of the drivers of increased wages is that some companies become way more profitable than others. And over time, they, they end up paying their people more. And this has happened with, you know, automobiles happen with, you know, energy companies and it's happening with tech and they're just kind of pointing out that even you know like uh, over time it's not just the the machine learning engineers at at amazon or the top programmers it's actually wages are rising for all the people including at the warehouses and and the 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 theory is that over time we're actually going to see these jobs get better now we'll see whether that's the case i do think one of the problems that i you know talk about quite a bit in the book is that we have built a system with a set of incentives that tell companies to pay people less, you know, because of, of this rogue objective function that says increase your stock price. That's how you will win. Uh, align the you know the incentives for your executives with this overriding, you know, objective function. We've created a situation where you know companies are incentivized to share less with their employees. And we, we have an economic theory that says some people are worth paying enormous amounts of money to, and some people are disposable. And I think we actually need to understand that if that our goal in an economy uh, can't be a winner-takes-all go- goal, and it can't be, you know, some people get 
incredibly outsized gains and other people get next to nothing. So I hear you vacillating between these two sides of the optimistic case for the future and the pessimistic case for the future. I mean, in, in each of your answers, you've, you've I, vacillated. I, I, yeah, I don't think, and, I, I don't consider it vacillation. I consider it, there are these two alternatives that <laughs> right. we are choosing between. Yes. Okay, sure. So the two core problems that you've mentioned, I think, are the AI objective function, or maybe you can bucket that with the sure. economic problematic yeah. 1980s mentality. Sure, they're, uh, they're the same thing. Objective function. And then the other problem is, okay, we've got dramatic disparity in sectors of of the economy who are you know making dramatically different amounts of money which translate to dramatically different realities yeah. dramatically different perspectives on where where this present is taking us which future this present is taking us towards so you're involved in a lot of different areas yeah. where you could be mending that that future that gap in the in the uh, in the equality and i think you know one of those is education obviously through o'reilly you know produce so many educational materials, some of them free, many of them free. And I know you're heavily involved in government. Uh, we're, we're at Code for America right now. And, you know, I'm also curious about your perspective on on uh, alternative methods of income redistribution, the UBI stuff. What are the, in the optimistic case, that we're able to make this work, that we're able to avert the great Roman collapse 2.0, what is it going to take? What are the thing? What what are the different policies? What are the different things that tech companies are going to need to do? What are the strategies that we need for the optimistic case to work yeah. out? Well, I think uh, first off, we really need to reject these ideas that took hold in the you know the eighties of basically if you if you optimize for the winners, uh, everyone will become you know prosperous. The the, the trickle down idea. We need to understand, I think, as, as my friend Nick Hanauer said, we all do better when we all do better, you know. And you know, we actually had that. As a, there was a period of, of prosperity where that was, in fact, the philosophy that governed you know, government policy and economic policy it was like, we want people to be working. We want, you know, they, they, it's sort of interesting, you know, there's just this historical seesaw that you see, you know, we had the 20s, which was agreed as good period, led to a great depression uh, and a world war. And then we went, oh, whoa, we really screwed up. We have to actually have a much more inclusive economy. We have to invest in people. Uh, you know, you think about the GI Bill uh, here, here at home and the Marshall Plan in Europe, you know, the equivalent in Japan, the rebuilding of the world after World War II uh, that made us all prosperous. And and then we kind of went, oh, we started to get inflation. And then we said, oh, well, we'll make this big correction, uh, you know, because our economy is getting inefficient. And we're due for another correction. You know, and I, I think one of the things that tech teaches us is at the scale and speed of the modern world, it's not a matter of a big correction every 50 years. You know, we need to have continuous you know, monitoring and feedback loops. And that's kind of what I've been trying to, you know, raise as an issue for government is how do you have, you know, you know, delivery-driven policy, you know, uh, in the same way we have delivery-driven, you know, development, you know, in tech. You know, we sit there and we, we try things and we test and, and, and 
if, if they work, we do more of them. If they don't work, we stop doing it. Uh, there's new changes in the environment, either competition or people trying to game the system. We go, oh, we have to adapt. You know, so there's this con- continual complex adaptive system in modern apps. Whereas government is, you know, sort of kind of fire and forget. You know, we're still operating on policies that we may have developed 70, 80 years ago. And maybe we've kind of added more, you know, we've doubled down on them, we've tweaked them a little bit. But we haven't really, you know, reinvented government. And and I think that there's a real opportunity to take the lessons of tech and to say, how would we do some of the things that, you know, if we said, what's our objective to make you know, we want to make a, a prosperous economy that's got opportunity for all. What would we do differently if we were starting over today? Well, the the GSA stuff and Mikey Dickerson and this all the stuff that went on under yeah. Obama, that seems like cause for optimism on a you know if we take a time horizon beyond the current administration, right? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, just to be clear, my wife, Jan Palka, uh, started the United States Digital Service. That's why she went to the Obama White House. It was basically, you know, this idea, uh, you know, she was basically, you know, originally Todd Park had started something called the Presidential Innovation Fellows, which was modeled on the Code for America Fellowship. And then he wanted Jen to come run it. And she said, no, I want to do something like what the U.K. is doing with the, the U.K. government digital service. That is, you need to have an elite core of tech people. So she went and developed the framework for that and 18F. And then, of course, the, the healthcare.gov crisis is what brought the political will to actually do it, you know. But we've been continuing to work on that. And, yes, it is incredibly hopeful. The United States Digital Service is continuing even under Trump. And it's kind of amazing. You know, I mean, hmm. Mikey left the end of the Obama administration, but Matt Cutts of Google, you know, went and took over the role. Now, of course, he, he, he agreed uh, originally when it, everybody thought that it was going to be Hillary was going to be the next president. And it took a lot of guts to say, I'm going to stick this out. And, you know, because he realized that, look, you know, getting veterans benefits uh, is not a political issue. <laughs> right. uh, getting, you know, the social services to work is not a political issue. And, and so, you know, service delivery is a big part of what government does, you know, well below the political layer. In fact, you can make the case that, you know, one of the reasons why people have lost faith in government and keep saying, well, we should just shrink it is because it's not doing a very good job at a lot of things. And if we could actually make government work better, people would be more willing to pay their taxes. They'd be more willing to support uh, programs. And to do that, government has to have these new tools that we have to understand in real time, are things working or not? Yeah. And there's so much that, you know, we feel excited about that tech can teach government. At the same time, my wife, Jen Palco, who started Code for America, you know, likes to say, you know, we also need to bring the values of government to tech. That is, the values that we are trying to build something that works for everyone. You know, because what, what is unique about government is it's an institution that when it works well is effectively trying to manage the platform and the society for the benefit of everyone. Now, that's sort of anathema to a lot of people. They like to say, oh, no, the free market is what we're depending on. And I just call bullshit on that. First off, it isn't a free market. It's got rules. 
and those rules are tilted one way or the other to, to you know, affect the outcomes. You know, we tell people we're going to give you this. You're going to charge you this much tax uh, for this kind of thing. You know, I mean, think about there's a lot of incentives for you know making financial investments. Uh, you know, there's a lower tax rate than there is on on paying people. You know, we we anyway. There's a lot of there's there's a lot of design in the system. You know, we have things like, oh, we're going to favor housing with tax breaks. We're going to favor, you know, this, what are all this, this huge amount of tax nipping and tucking and shaping of the economy in the same way that Google shapes its search algorithms. And here's the thing, that we now can do those things way better than we did before. You know, we, we sit there and when we look at, you know, this idea of the more free the market, the better – that's looking at the contrast between, you know, really bad experiments in the 30s and 40s in Russia and China, you know, in the 50s of, you know, centralized control. And what actually happens today? I, I look at the information market enabled by Google, for example. And you tell me that that's a free market. It's a centrally managed marketplace. Google's algorithms decide what things show up on the first page of results, right? It's not the market. It's Google is actually managing that. It's a centrally planned economy. And it's centrally planned, and it works because Google is using data to actually say, what are people really looking for? So they're kind of, in some sense, replicating the what we traditionally think of as the role, the coordinating role of independent, you know, free markets by taking much, much more data into account. And, and I think one of the things that we failed to understand, you know, when we kind of look at the sort of what I like to call today the Adam Smith marketplaces of people exchanging goods and services largely on a local or regional basis, you know, where price signaling was a principal coordinating function. But also, you had a lot of visibility you know, into who you were buying from. You knew them, perhaps. There was sort of a lot of trust signals and so on. And then you look at these modern global marketplaces where there, there are vast information asymmetries uh, that can be exploited by you know, players who have much more information. So the financial price signaling aspect is actually much less effective because those, those signals can be gamed and controlled by uh, you know, players with a lot of financial power. And meanwhile, you start to see these evolution of these new marketplaces. And, and this is one of the things I think a lot of people haven't recognized about Google and Facebook because they make so much money. They go, oh, well, that's the market, right? They go, no, actually, the actual content exchange market of both Facebook and Google of people producing content and consuming content is kind of independent of the price signaling. The price signaling market, the advertising market, is a sidebar mar market that gets attached on. It's a sidecar. You know, that's attached to the, this market that's coordinated by non-price signals, by non-economic signals. Google says, well, we can take hundreds of factors into account to figure out what people are really looking for when they say the Engineering Today podcast. Or software engineering. Data, <laughs> Sorry, my, it's all right. My, presumably, the AI probably would recognize. Go, actually, he really meant software engineering daily, right? So here's this, you know, this centrally managed and created and curated set of algorithms that are matching up people with what they're looking for. 
Same thing, you know, with, with Amazon. It's like when you have 600 million products, we're not all looking at the same store. You know, Amazon's algorithms are deciding, well, what are you really looking for? What are you most likely to buy? And, you know, and it's dynamic and it's unique for everyone. And, and so the, I, I think there's some fundamental changes in the nature of the economy that we haven't fully understood. And I, I'm, I'm really enamored of this idea that this phrasing that came from a guy named Paul Cohen. He's the dean of the Information Sciences School at Pitt. Uh, we were both at a, a meeting uh, on AI at the National Academies in Washington, D.C. And he said something beautiful. He said, the opportunity for AI is to help humans model and manage complex interacting systems. And I think that is, is a, a kind of a beautiful summation. You know, you think of, effectively the job and the opportunity of AI is to ha- help us build better markets. You know, Google is a marketplace that's designed and managed by people. Facebook is a marketplace that's designed and managed by people. Amazon is a marketplace that's designed and managed by people. The Apple App Store. And they've created a space where there can be a market with lots of contributors, but it is, in fact, centrally managed and coordinated by these algorithmic systems. And so I say, let's take those lessons to government and say, Okay, government has to get better at managing the systems that it is effectively creating the infrastructure for. I want to shift the topic completely to something more microcosmic. So your company, O'Reilly, is a private company, and that stands in stark contrast to the public companies that we've been discussing. Nonetheless, your company's been super successful. What are the pros and cons of a private company in contrast to a public company? Well, I guess there's two or three different axes that you have to look at. And the first one is, let me actually just talk about a financialized company rather than a public or private. Okay. That's a different distinction. Because you can have a startup, for example, that from day one, is financialized, right. even though it's not... Cash what, flow positive meaning? Yeah, what I mean by financialized is its fundamental product is the price of the company. You know, I mean, that's a financialized company. When you have a startup and your goal is to increase the valuation all the way out to IPO, right? The product you are fundamentally making is the price of the company. I see what you're saying. Right? Whereas... I literally have an old-fashioned Adam Smith company. Yeah, you I, do, yes. I, I make stuff, or we make stuff. Yeah. We sell it to people who say, oh, I want that, and they pay us for it. Whether right. it's a book, or whether it's an event, whether it's our online subscription service, Safari, people pay us for the stuff we create. Yes. And we make our, our, our money on the spread between what it costs us to make it. And, and that's the way the whole economy used to work. Now, now, if you look at the startup economy, it's kind of a... You know, it's a microcosm of the broader public market economy, which is just, it's a betting economy. And in some sense, you know, I I don't really go this far in the book, and maybe I should have. It's It's a sign that we are actually, you know, we've commoditized so much of the Adam Smith economy. You know, that is, most of what we make can be made really cheaply, and it is a commodity. So humans are always looking for a way to make something new valuable. This is thread that runs through the book. Uh, you know, I talk about it in four or five different contexts. You know, Clay Christensen called it the law of conservation of attractive profits. That is, when one thing becomes a commodity, something else, usually something adjacent, becomes valuable. And you know, so in some sense, 
you know, as we stop, as we meet more of the, you know, day-to-day needs of people in the economy, we build things that people don't really need, but maybe they just want. Actually, Samuel Johnson, the famous, uh, you know, uh, 19th century author, uh, you know, once wrote about this wonderful passage in his little novel, Rasselas. He said, his character says, I consider the pyramids to be a monument to the insufficiency of all human enjoyments. He who is built for use till use is supplied must begin to build for vanity. You know, and so you think about, you know, how much of our economy is now stuff that you don't really need, but that you want, you know, whether it's fashion, whether it's entertainment, or whether it's, you know, my startup's worth more than yours. You know, and, and in some sense, way too many startups, I think, are being built. I mean, there's sort of a good part of all that, where it's like, if you really see it as, you know, startups are kind of like movies, you know, and, and VCs are kind of like movie studios. Yeah. And entrepreneurs are kind of like movie right. stars. Then you go, okay, I get what it is. It's an entertainment right. economy, and we're creating products, and, you know, Snap is like Mission Impossible. You know, you go, oh, great. Okay, I know what it is. I yeah. know what I'm getting into. But if you think that, you know, what we haven't really figured out, which, you know, and in, in those things, it's like just being popular gets you a valuation. You know, neither Twitter nor Snap has ever made a dollar of real profit, you know, where their, their actual, you know, revenues were greater than their costs. And then there are other companies, you know, like you know, they get Go- super money, though, Google, right? Like, yeah, they do. They've got what I call, yeah, I t- call it in the book super money. You know, so they, they get this huge. Do you and do you ever wonder what could O'Reilly be if we had super money? Well, I've thought about it many times, and part of it is, first of all, it's a winner takes all game, and you know, it's sort of a betting market game. And I've been around a lot of companies and watched them come and go, <laughs> and everybody kind of focuses on the winners without thinking about the losers. And, you know, I think for every, you know, company that, you know, is a big winner in this, you know, gamble to be of perception, you know, for people to be betting on you for the future, uh, there are a lot of losers. And uh, so I guess I said, well, look, I think there's a slow and steady uh, (laughs) way to win. And then there's this high return, high risk way to win. The problem with the high risk, high return way is... I think a lot of times it's kind of a fraud. I, you know, I, I, I hate to use that word, uh, you know, and I, a lot of people would, will hate me in Silicon Valley for it, but, you know, it's not that dissimilar from if you don't actually have a real business in mind that will actually produce revenue and profits in the end, yes. you're preying on people, just like the people, uh, you know, on Wall Street who were selling these, you know, uh, packaged up mortgages in 2006, 2007, leading this big crash. You know, because in the end, you know, a Google, for example, which is a real company, you know, people are betting on its future and the bet pays off. Yeah. Right. People are betting on Amazon and the bet pays off. Right. Now, you know, Amazon is a little different. It's sort of interesting. One of the things I've been doing as an exercise uh, since I wrote the book is actually looking at how far along are we to the, the bet paying off by looking at the market cap of a company or of the wealth of the founders versus the, you know, what they would have if they were a private company. You know, so like for me, you know, I, I look at my, you know, my, my effectively my 
net worth is a product of, well, what are the retained earnings of my company over 40 years? You know, I mean, how much did we make? And I don't necessarily all have it personally, but if I sold the company, I could realize, I could realize the difference between, you know, what's in the company and, and, and maybe I could sell it in some other way. But, you know, there's, there's sort of a, a set of dollars that have accumulated. Yeah. And, you know, you really see it vividly. You know, I, I've been looking at the contrast between Google and Amazon. You know, Jeff Bezos is currently worth $144 billion in the stock market. It, it, he now owns something like, I can't remember whether he's down to 19% of the company ownership. Uh, but anyway, I just sort of tracked over the years since they went public. If he had just simply got his share of the company's you know, retained earnings, that is its, its you know, share of its profits, he'd be worth $1.5 <laughs> So he has 100 times as much wealth yeah. as he would have just as a share of the actual dollars that his sure. company made. And so you kind of go, will that ever equalize out? I, I think it will, but it will equalize out because – Amazon will come down from a couple of hundred times earnings down to a more reasonable number. You know, like Facebook and Google, you know, are not that far ahead of the of the S and P five hundred now. I mean, I think Google's twenty six times and Facebook's twenty nine times its earnings, and because of that, you kind of go, okay, so that what that means is, you know, over a period of twenty years, you know, if you bought the stock. and 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 the stock is a claim on the earnings. Effectively, the stock will you know, earn out, you know, as opposed to all you place this bet and you managed to cash out before the greater fool didn't mm-hmm. realize that mm-hmm. it was going to crash. You know, so Google, you know, I mean, Larry and Sergey probably are already halfway there to having really earned their wealth, you know, through the actual profits of their company. Mm-hmm. You know, yes. Jeff, Jeff is 100, uh, has achieved 1% sure. of his actual wealth. Sure. So now again, they, they, again, it's not to say these companies also demonstrate uh, particularly Amazon, Google didn't need that much capital to get to profitability. You know, whereas Amazon needed a great deal of capital to get to profitability. And that's how financial markets should work. They should be, you know, when you need capital to build a future, that's what they should be good for. But instead, we're spending a lot of that capital just uh, making a lot of people rich for companies that fail. They get acquired, they get, you know, they don't go anywhere and, you know, I, I, I trace in my book a little bit how that happened with AOL. You know, AOL went all the way up to $240 billion in market cap, you know, partly based on a set of fake news in some sense about we're an Internet company. And they weren't. They were a dial-up company. And they, they weren't actually an Internet company, but they rode the Internet wave. And then they crashed back down to $20 billion. So they created, you know, some value, but they were able to sell, you know, on this hype wave of the Internet, able to sell themselves as way bigger than they were. And I look at that with Uber, for example, and you know, self-driving cars. I kind of make reference to this in, in the book, that Uber's investments in self-driving cars were kind of fake news. Hey, we'll be a way stronger business in the future because we'll get rid of those pesky, expensive drivers, so value us more highly now, right? And, and the fact is, that's the kind of sort of perception engineering that we see in an overly financialized market. Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay. So your company, O'Reilly, established a durable competitive advantage over time. And along that path, you also did do 
some speculative things that worked out. So you had a Skunk Works, you actually started a company called, or a, a spun off a company called the Global Network Navigator, which was the out of the Skunk Works project, you sold it to AOL for, yeah. I think, $11 million or something. It's actually 15 by the time. 15 yeah, anyway, whatever, plus, plus some stocks. Yeah, anyway. Yeah. So it was like great outcome, <laughs> Skunk Works project. Yeah. O'Reilly By has fifty million dollars in ninety five was a lot more money than it is today. Uh, yeah, of course, absolutely. What I wonder is, have you continued to do Skunk Works things, and and how have you felt over time, uh, over the the last forty years, about the durable cash flow positive business and just focusing and and sticking to your knitting as opposed to trying to do skunk works things speculative yeah. things uh moonshot projects that might be more native to a company like like a google or an amazon that have super money and they can sort of throw well, money at, well yeah. anyway yeah you understand yeah that. Uh, i guess what i would say is you pick the hat to fit the head you know and there's some things that you know this has a business model, just keep turning the crank. There's other things you don't know if you have a business model. And, you know, so like with GNN, you know, there were a couple of things there. We, we, we were like very early in the web. It was the very first commercial website launched in, in 1993. Uh, it was the first advertising on the web. And we had a lot to prove. And we got a few years into it, and we saw the web taking off. And I said, oh, I'm going to have to take in a lot more money. Because I read a book called uh, Marketing High Technology by Ron David. And he, he basically had an appendix where he talked about the math of market domination. And it's what convinced me to sell. He said, look, in order to dominate a market, you have to be at least half the market and growing faster than the market as a whole. And I looked at the web, and I said, there's no way I can do that without taking in a lot of money. And I don't want to do that because in my consulting days, I'd been around a lot of startups and I watched them go from being really interesting places to places that I didn't want to be anymore. And uh, I wanted to keep O'Reilly independent, so I spun it out. And, you know, we sold it to AOL and watched them promptly tank it because they didn't really believe in the Internet, even though they said they did, you know. And, uh, you know, and over the years, we've, we've spun out a number of other technology projects in, and sold them. You know, we started an early venture firm and have done some very useful investments. And I've, I've, we've, we've had some wins. You know, uh, we were the first investor in Blogger, which we sold to Google, you know, Ev's first company. We, uh, for example, and, and, you know, again, it was one of these things where it very nearly went out of business, but managed to, to get rescued. And, you know, blogging went on to become quite important, although Google didn't do much with Blogger. And I, I guess I'd just say I have a, a, a mix, you know, like I look, we were the first investor in Planet Labs, for example, Planet now it's called, which is microsatellites. And, you know, here's a company that requires capital. It launches satellites, which cost money. And, you know, it's been years to build this, you know, a global network to image the surface of the earth every day. That's what financial markets are good for. We could never have done that, you know, without speculative capital. You know, but on other things, you kind of go, you know, but I also, I, you know, some of it's just, it's just inclination. I, I think the main thing is to be focused on the value that you are creating. Because if you are creating value, then you say, oh, is this a better, and when I say value, I mean real customer value, not, oh, I can, I can, I can get some fool, greater fool to give me money for this thing, and I can sell it. You know, and I watch, you know, companies, you know, the, the, the companies I'm looking at 
today. You know, some of them are competitors. And I go, yeah, you know, you managed to go public, you know, losing a couple hundred million dollars. Competitors to O'Reilly, you're saying? Yeah, yeah. You know, where they're spending money, you know, for customer acquisition. And you really look at the business and you go, that's a crappy business. It's not sustainable. You know, but they're managing to get through to a, you know, a financialized exit. Now, maybe they can now turn it into a real business. But, you know, we're in bubble times, you know, when you can have, you know, businesses that are, are, are getting 50 cents on the dollar that they spend, you know, go public, you know, because, hey, that's just that's not real business. That's just appearances. Uh, and again, you know, the part of the thing is that people don't understand that there's some businesses where scale sticks and there's other businesses where scale doesn't stick. There are a lot of headwinds in in the industry that you're in. The developer marketing, there's tons of developers that, you know, the the market size is obviously growing. You've got develop developing markets. What are the biggest changes that you foresee for the O'Reilly media business in the near future? Yeah, well, I mean, the the biggest changes that we're, we're you know, that we're really betting on is we've shifted a lot of emphasis. You know, if you, there's really three legs to the stool today. There's our original business, which was book publishing. It's now the smallest part of our business. Then there's uh, events, which is the next, uh, you know, largest. And then there's our online platform, which is the largest. Hmm. And so, you know, we're placing a big bet on the online learning platform. It is, in fact, a marketplace play because we're not the only provider. We're, we're both a provider of content from our book publishing and our events business, you know, feed content in. But we have hundreds of other publishers and other types of content providers. You know, we see that sort of on-demand learning marketplace being, you know, an incredibly important part of the future of how developers learn and just in general how companies do continuous training and upskilling of their employees. So, you know, we've already placed a huge bet on that as the future of, of our business. And I think we have some real advantages there. I mean, there's a lot of people who are doing video training, for example, and we have, you know, because we have, you know, books are really good for, I need some really in-depth answer that's been vetted, but we also have a lot more uh, we also go all the way through because of our experience with events and live training. We do online live training. And, and so we, we kind of have a, a sort of a comprehensive set of, of offerings. You know, the other thing I would say, and this is one that we have not, you know, fully grokked, and that is this idea of upskilling that we've talked about with, you know, with regard to Uber or Amazon warehouse workers. Yeah. And that is where the intelligence really resides in the machine itself and humans in partnership with the machine. And we, you know, quite frankly, I, I, it's something I've thought about for, you know, 20, 30 years, you know. Yeah. How does that apply, you know, to our business? And I, you know, it, it's going to one day somebody's going to do it and I'm going to slap myself on the forehead. <laughs> and go, Why couldn't we see that? But that augmentation. Yeah. You know, and again, we know some of it, you know, you look at uh, – you know, modern developer tools and, you know, how much they assist you in, you know, coding correctly. You look at all the tools for, you know, sort of version control and sharing, and that's all aug developer augmentation. You know, you look at, uh, you, know, we, you know, we spend a lot of time thinking about, you know, things like Jupyter Notebooks as, as a way of delivering, you know, uh, learning and content more effectively. 
and those are also examples of how you can augment people and augment the kinds of, of ways that we share information with each other. You're talking about upskilling non-developers, right? Well, you know, both. In some sense, if you think about, you know, like, like an upskilling technology, desktop publishing, you know, meant that anybody could you know, publish a good-looking document. Sure. And, you know, Jupyter Notebook is an upskilling technology because it means you can publish a document with the data that goes with it, you know, in a way that, and, or the model that goes with it. And so it's, it's real advance in publishing, you know, and, and knowledge transmission. And I think that's important. But we still haven't really seen the kind of knowledge on demand. When I, when I think of, you know, the metaphor of where, you know, we all need to be converging on, it's a little bit like the, you know, the scene in The Matrix where Neo asks Trinity, you know, about the <laughs> helicopter, do you know how to fly that? And she says, not yet. Right. You know, and of course, that's what we all want. You know, you go, do you know how, you know, how to do TensorFlow. Yeah, you know how to do TensorFlow. <laughs> you go, not yet. And you download the information. And, you know, in some ways, of course, we are there because, you know, the ability to, to sort of package up and containerize and, you know, those are all elements of this kind of superpower that we're building around development where you can be more powerful, you know, and you can quickly get access to new skills, new capabilities, you know, the, the, the fact that, you know, you no longer have to build your AI models from scratch. You know that there's, uh, you know, pretty powerful tools available from the cloud platforms. You know, these are all ways of developer upskilling, and you know, and and I think for us, you know, part of it is understanding which of those things, you know, are most appropriate for people. Interesting new book I'm reading right now uh, called Prediction Machines. And it's actually one of the best books I've read on the application of AI to business. And it kind of makes the point that, look, you know, stop talking about AI. Just talk about these things are, are machines that are good at prediction. You give them some data and they, you know, kind of say, well, this, this is what this data predicts. And you say, well, what becomes valuable, you know, in a world where this prediction is cheaper? And they kind of go, well, it's judgment. It's the judgment. What do you ask? You know, what are the questions that you're going to ask when you get a bunch of uh, predictions? Are they... A good predictions or not, you know. And again, you look at that ability. Uh, effectively, debugging in some sense becomes senior to programming in that world. I, I love this phrase. It's one of these things I've regretted. I didn't use it in my book. It was because after the book went to press, I remembered a conversation I'd had. I don't know, maybe I don't know, thirty years ago with Andrew Singer. It was early in in the company's history. We were working on documentation. Yeah, it was probably maybe 1987 or 88. I was writing the manual for a product called Lightspeed C, which was the first C compiler for the Mac. Andrew had a company called Think Technologies. It later became called Think, Think C due to a trademark problem. Andrew said something that, that sort of stuck with me, and, and it came back recently, and it was like, the skill of debugging is figuring out what you really told your program to do instead of what you thought you told it to do. And you think about it, that's what Facebook is doing right now. You know, they've got this vast prediction machine that says, if I show you more of this, you, you, you're going to, you know, look at it, you know. And now they're going, oh, well, is it doing what we really thought it was doing? You know, they're realizing there were all these consequences. And that's really what this book, Prediction Machines, is talking about. It's like, oh, in a world with increased prediction, the, the key skill is actually understanding whether the predictions did what we thought they were going to do. And that's something that uh, I think is something we all really have got to come to grips with. You know, we are 
you know, in some sense, you probably remember in the early days of the web when everybody went nuts over you could make things blink and then there was color and all this kind of crap, you know, and then we kind of had this sort of, you know, design renaissance. And we're kind of approaching that moment with AI because we're realizing that we can do all this stuff and we're doing it wrong in some way. You know, we're making bad predictions and yeah. just accepting them. You know, it's everything from the bad predictions, uh, you know, based on, you know, sentencing algorithms in criminal justice to, you know, Facebook's algorithms to whatever. And it's exactly as, as uh, this book points out, you know, what's really becomes valuable again is, you know, our human judgment to evaluate, you know, and, and again, I love Andrew's phrasing, you know, is the system we're building uh, you know, is it doing what we actually wanted to do? Tim O'Reilly, thanks for coming on Software Engineering Daily. It's been really great talking to you. Fantastic to talk with you too. Thanks. Okay, great. Wow.